we're really living in a world that has turned us all into addicts, essentially. 70% of the global deaths today are caused by modifiable risk factors in nations where people have access to all of this abundance. We really have reached a tipping point when we are dying because of our behaviors. Hi, my name is Rongan Chastji. Welcome to Feel Better, Live More. Do you think you have an addiction or perhaps an unhealthy relationship with a certain behavior, a behavior that you have tried to stop in the past, but you keep returning back to despite your best intentions? Well, if you do, and I cannot imagine there are many people out there who don't, I think you will find today's conversation eye-opening. My guest is Dr. Anna Lemke, a professor of psychiatry at Stanford University School of Medicine and author of the brilliant new book, Dopamine Nation, in which she explores the exciting new scientific discoveries that explain why our relentless pursuit of pleasure leads to pain. In today's conversation, we explore the fact that we are living in a dopamine overloaded world where everything has been made more accessible, more abundant, and more potent. We're living in a time of unprecedented access to high rewards, high dopamine stimuli. Drugs, food, news, gambling, shopping, gaming, texting, sexting, Facebooking, Instagramming, YouTubing, tweeting, the list really is endless. And the effect is that we are now living in a world that has turned many of us into addicts. So, so what exactly can we do about it? Well, that is the topic of discussion in today's podcast. We start off by delving into what exactly dopamine is, why we all need it, and how getting too much of it can actually lead to pain. Anna explains that pleasure and pain work like a balance in the brain. In fact, the same parts of the brain that process pleasure also process pain. And if we tip that balance too far in the pursuit of pleasure, as many of us do, the brain responds by overcompensating and pushing us in the direction of pain. But it's not all doom and gloom. There is plenty that we can do to find the right balance. And in our conversation, Anna shares some of her best practical advice that has been honed over years and years of treating patients. We cover a wide range of topics in our conversation, including why radical honesty is important for all of us, the lessons that we can learn from people who have been through recovery, the effect that isolation has on addiction. And we also discuss how this problem of overconsumption can affect our kids at crucial stages in their development and what we can do to protect them. Anna is a wonderful lady. She is clearly a world leading expert in her fields. But I think what I love the most about her is her authenticity, her compassionate manner, and her passion to help as many people as she can. This was a powerful conversation. I hope you enjoyed listening. Before we get started, I am really excited to announce that we have a brand new sponsor. The podcast is partnering with LeafYard, a new mental health app that helps motivate people to take control of their mental well-being. Now, all of us struggle from time to time and need help building up our mental fitness and resilience, whether we have a diagnosed mental health problem or not. 
And science has now proven that there are many things that we can do that will improve our mental fitness. Sleep, exercise, breath work, mindfulness, meditation, journaling, relationships, changing our thought patterns. But the problem is many of us, despite knowing what to do, don't actually take action, especially when we are not feeling our best. And this, I think, is where LeafYard can really, really help. LeafYard is a web app that takes a very different approach to building physical and mental fitness. It uses proven behavioral science to gently push you to take small steps every day to change the way that you feel. It helps you to keep your mind healthy through a series of regular videos that will teach you how to cope with stress, increase happiness, and build resilience and confidence. In fact, it's going to help you put into practice a lot of the things that you may have heard about in this podcast or read about in my books. In fact, a few of my own team members have been using LeafYard for the past few months and tell me it has made a big, big difference to their mental well-being. LeafYard are giving my podcast listeners an exclusive limited-time offer, 20% off any LeafYard membership. All you have to do is go to leafyard.com and use the codes LIVEMORE20 at checkout to get 20% off. Or go to leafyard.com forward slash live more. That's L-E-A-F-Y-A-R-D dot com forward slash live more, where the discount will be automatically applied. If you are not sure, why not give it a try? Everybody can try the app free of charge for 14 days. And I just want to add, this is a time of year when many people are really, really struggling. So you might want to consider gifting LeafYard to a friend or family member. Starting your own LeafYard journey yourself is one thing. Starting it with a friend saying, I've got your back is quite another. And just a quick reminder about the new Feel Better Live More membership option, where you now have the option to listen to ad-free episodes, as well as getting an exclusive monthly Ask Me Anything episode where I answer some of your questions. Click the link in the episode description on your podcast app or go to drchatterjee.com forward slash membership where you can sign up. And now my conversation with Dr. Anna Lemke. The term dopamine gets spoken about a lot these days in the context of addiction, social media, food. And I wonder if sometimes we misinterpret what it is and what its function is. So I thought we could start perhaps by you explaining what is dopamine, when does it get released, and why is it so important for us? Great. I love starting there. So dopamine is a chemical that our brain makes, and it's essential to informing us about changes in our environment and in our body state. And we need it in particular to tell us when we are getting a signal from the environment about something that we should approach or do more of or work for or pay attention to. Dopamine is also the molecule that's really fundamental to the process of getting addicted to something because dopamine is released when we do something that's highly pleasurable, highly reinforcing, and remember, our brains have evolved over millions of years to approach pleasure and avoid pain. It's what's kept us alive and thriving on this planet for so long. 
But one of the, I think, common misunderstandings about dopamine is that it's only released in response to pleasure. And that's not true. It actually can be released in response to aversive stimuli that are somehow important for our brain to pay attention to. And we can get, get into that more later. But I mean, as a fundamental sort of function of dopamine, it's really about motivation and the approach signal. You know, interestingly, dopamine is also related to movement, right? It's the it's the chemical that gets depleted in the disease of Parkinsonism, where people become rigid and yeah. can't move anymore um, because they don't have enough do dopamine in a part of the brain called the substantia nigra. So, dopamine is essential for pleasure, motivation, reward, moving toward an object. Given how important dopamine is, then in our well, one of its functions, as you say, is it is our pursuit of pleasure. You say it's intimately linked with addiction. So where is that sweet spot where we can use it to gain pleasure, you know, gain those rewards that, that we, we all want without it sort of tipping over into addiction? You know, and I think that's that really, I think, underpins a lot of your book, doesn't it? This kind of... Yeah this balance and this sweet spot, because we, we find it hard. Yeah, yeah, no, you're right. And it's hard not just because we're wired to approach pleasure and avoid pain. It's hard because we're living in a dopamine overloaded world where everything has become drugified. Everything has been made more accessible, more abundant, more potent, more reinforcing, more novel. And so we're really living in a world that has turned us all into addicts, essentially, um, plus our primitive wiring that's not really evolved for that ecosystem. And to understand sort of how we get out of that adaptive, healthy seeking of dopamine and fall into that maladaptive, addictive seeking of dopamine, it's really important to understand that pleasure and pain work like a balance in the brain and that the same parts of the brain that process pleasure also process pain. And if you like, I can I can describe sort of that relationship. Yeah, yeah, please do. I'd love to hear about it. Okay, so if you imagine that in your brain, there's a balance like a teeter-totter in a kid's playground, okay? And when we experience pleasure, it tips one way. And when we experience pain, it tips the opposite way. And one of the overarching rules governing that balance is that it wants to remain level. It doesn't want to be tipped for very long to the side of pleasure or pain. And our brains will work very hard to restore a level balance or what neuroscientists call homeostasis. So when we do something pleasurable, okay, so in my, in my case, that might be reading a romance novel or eating a piece of chocolate or um, my morning cup of coffee, what happens is that I, I, I get a little release of dopamine in a part of our brain called the reward pathway. And my balance tips to the side of pleasure. But no sooner has it done that than my brain will try to restore a level balance by down-regulating dopamine production and dopamine transmission, not just to baseline levels, but below baseline levels. So, and I imagine that as these little gremlins hopping on the pain side of the balance that bring it level again, but they like it on the balance. So they stay on until it's tipped an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. That's the come down, the after effect, the hangover, or that moment of wanting you know, one more cup of coffee or, you know, wanting that novel not to end or wanting to watch one more episode. 
Now, if we wait long enough, those neuroadaptation gremlins hop off and baseline dopamine levels are restored. But if we don't wait, if we continue to consume our drug of choice repeatedly over days to weeks to months to years, we end up with enough gremlins on the pain side of the balance to fill this whole room. In other words, we end up with a pleasure pain balance that has a new hedonic or joy set point. It's now chronically tilted to the side of pain because those gremlins are camped out there and we are in a dopamine deficit state. In other words, to compensate for the increase in dopamine in our brain's reward pathway beyond what our brain has evolved to deal with, we essentially go into this chronic dopamine deficit state. And once we're in that state, we are struggling with the addicted brain. And then we need our drug not to feel good, but just to restore a level balance and feel normal. And when we're not using, we're experiencing the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance, which are anxiety, irritability, insomnia, depression, and intrusive thoughts of wanting to use. Yeah, that that sort of um, idea of a seesaw and we move to the side, we, we, we have our drug of choice and, you know, as we're going to talk about, this doesn't necessarily need to be alcohol or, you know, cocaine. This can be sugar. This can be right. coffee. This can be Instagram. And right. so we 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 press on pleasure on the seesaw. And you're saying that actually the body then responds by the seesaw goes in the other direction to move us to to try and recreate balance. But if we keep doing this day in day out, the seesaw gets stuck. And actually, we're just left craving all the time. We want, we, 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 we take any dopamine hit just to get back to normal. That's right. So in the world in which we live, you know, if I, if I think back to me as a child, the internet did not exist. And we would hear about addiction. We would hear about drug addicts and alcohol addicts, right? So clearly back then without, as you so beautifully call it, what is it? The smartphone is the modern day hypodermic needle. Just such a beautifully evocative way of looking at the modern day smartphone. Addiction was still a problem back then. What has happened with the internet? What has happened with smartphones to our, I guess, our propensity for seeking pleasure, our propensity for addiction? What has the internet done? So the internet has really turned us all into people struggling with compulsive overconsumption on a number of different levels. First of all, the device itself is quite reinforcing. Screens are like primitive fires that we are drawn toward and, and gather around. The kind of tapping and swiping, I think, really taps into, no pun intended, um, our sort of primitive desire to use our hands in repetitive ways. Um, the phone itself is, you know, indeed a portal to drugs that have been around forever. Like I can use this phone to order cocaine to my doorstep, like ordering a pizza, right? Yeah. But it's also made drugs that have been around for a long time, but were harder to get, like pornography, much, much more accessible. So starting, you know, in the early 2000s, I started to see more and more men in particular come in 
with debilitating pornography addiction. And almost universally, they said it was the internet, the advent of the internet and the phone that made these graphic images and then ultimately live people so accessible that really then conspired to make what had been a manageable use of pornography or masturbation into a compulsive, you know, debilitating, life-threatening problem. And then finally, the internet has created drugs that literally did not exist before, things like video games. And yes, games have been around forever, but you know, the internet and the screen and the software have allowed for these incredibly vivid experiences that are really unlike you know, anything that you would find in, in real life. Social media too. So human connection is healthy and adaptive, but social media manages to take the healthy aspects of human connection and potentially drugify them with you know, the bright lights, the curated profiles, the beautiful images, the bottomless bowls, the likes, the rankings when we enumerate things. Uh, we make them more potent, they release more dopamine. So for all these reasons, a very exciting, wonderful technology really does have this dark underbelly. You start your book with a very striking case of sex addiction. And you are an addiction specialist, people are coming to you you know, presumably when they've exhausted all other options and they really, really need help. Whereas for me, often it's like their first portal. It's like, okay, I need to go and talk to my doctor about this. And I can remember vividly this young man in his early 20s. He came in, he was sort of, wouldn't make eye contact with me. And, you know, he started, you know, once I'd sort of gained his trust and really tried hard to connect with him, soften my tone so he would open up. You know, he he couldn't look at me as he was telling me how much mm. he was using pornography and how it was, um, frankly, destroying his life, his social right. life, his life with his family. Mm-hmm. And I kind of feel we we really need to talk about this because not enough people are talking about this. We're talking about other addictions. We talk about social yes. media addictions, about alcohol, about sugar. We, all mm-hmm. these things, they're okay. But sex and pornography, this is going on. This is a massive problem. And I think in that secrecy, in the shame that builds up in these people, this addiction thrives, yet no one's really talking about it. So I'm fascinated that you had the courage, I would say, to open up your book with this story. So I wonder if you could talk through why you decided to start with this story, because on one hand, it could put people off. People might go, mm. ah, you know, mm-hmm. I, don't want, I don't want to read about this. Yeah. But as you so yeah. beautifully say, you said these things, instead of putting us off, they really show us what we're all capable of. Right. What, That's what, right. What, what exactly did you mean by that? Well, first, let me say thank you for acknowledging that it did take some courage to open with that story. And I also, also want to just express my deep and enduring gratitude to all of my patients who were willing to allow me to share their stories, um, you know, anonymously, because that, that, that was a tremendous act of courage on, on their part. And I did get feedback from my editors saying, well, you know, maybe you should hide this sort of more in the middle of the book. Do you really want to open with this? But I I agree with you, this is a huge problem. And although there's a lot of stigma and shame with all kinds of addictions, I think there's more stigma and shame with sex addiction than with any other and more misconceptions where people think that people 
you know, can just stop, that it's not that big a deal or that people who are looking, it's a lifestyle choice. And, and you know, from your clinical work, and I know from my clinical work, that for some people, it is a devastating, compulsive, life-threatening condition that is very, very difficult to manage in a world where they're constantly being not just reminded of sex, but literally chased down. I mean, even I, in my professional Stanford email inbox, get solicitations for pornography. Insane, right? I mean, I don't know where they come from or how they get my email. But, you know, if I had a very severe sex addiction, that right there might be a trigger that, you know, in my efforts to maintain recovery would would send me down that road. So, um, you know, I think this is a growing problem, especially among men, growing numbers of young men. Um, it's also, you know, normalized. So pornography use, I think, has, you know, really become very normalized. And so the compulsive, the insidious compulsive nature or the, the, the point to which people can get, I think is really not appreciated because it's become sort of so normalized. And as I talk about in my book, you know, this patient who developed a severe sex addiction, wonderful man, yeah. a scientist, a brilliant, you know, Stanford scientist, a very kind man, a father, a loving father, you know, a, a, a loving spouse, um, committed to his wife. So, you know, this is the way that addiction can just take hold of us and, and drive us to engage in behaviors that are not consistent with our goals or values or any of it. And the other thing, as you know, that I talk about in my book is that I saw parallels between my patient with this very severe sex addiction and my own compulsive reading of romance novels. Romance is in many ways sort of socially sanctioned pornography for women. And I started out with The Twilight Saga, which was a vampire romance novel written for teenagers. I was in my early 40s. I just heard some mothers talking about it. I thought, oh, that sounds fun. They liked it. I read it. I was completely transported by it. And by that, I mean, I was egoless. I was out of my body. I did not experience myself. I achieved non-being, which is what we crave so much in this modern world of hyperstimulation. We want to forget ourselves, essentially. And this provided that for me, and then also led to about a two-year trajectory of me reading more and more graphic, essentially pornography novels um, that I had to acknowledge at some point had become a problem. So when I saw this patient, I did not see him as other than I. I saw him as somebody who could have been me had my trajectory just been a little bit yeah. different. There's something really powerful, I think, about what you just said. You are a respected neuroscientist, medical doctor, you've written books, uh, you are considered a world-leading expert, and you were able to engage in a societally sanctioned version of pornography or, you know, romance. And that's okay, you know, you, you're, a, you know, it's, it, this kind of speaks to this wider point and problem of addiction, isn't it? And what is okay? And right. what is deemed as, well, at an extreme, what is deemed as criminal, um, which is, you know, that's another point altogether, should people in real need of help who are in so much pain that they're using whatever they can to numb that pain, 
you know, at what point do we bring criminal charges against them as a society, I feel mm. is, a, is a conversation that needs to be had. But, you know, that, that view of a man who might be addicted to sex, you know, they're, they're sort of shunned, aren't they? That's sort of, that's, right. um, that's a dirty man. You know, that you, you mentioned that you were encouraged to put out to perhaps not start the book with that story. <laughs> and if I could just share that, I have just handed in the manuscripts on my next book, uh, which comes out in a few months, uh, to do with happiness and mental well-being. And I also have a very small section covering the problem with pornography and pornography mm-hmm. addiction. And again, my publisher also said, well, I'm not do we really need this in the book? You know, this, uh, and I was very firm and I said, look, the problem by not speaking about this, right. this problem is thriving in right. silence and secrecy. Mm-hmm. And that secrecy becomes toxic. Yeah. Well, good for you. I'm glad you stood your ground. Yeah. Well, let's see what happens when it gets printed because they delete it. But, I th- but I'm pretty sure it will be there. It's, I think it's very important. So if we go back to dopamine and this balance and let's broaden this out beyond you know sex addiction what happens with repeated exposure to the same drug do does the seesaw change do we need more and more to get the same hit i mean and and how does that play out for you when you see patients yeah so that so you know getting back to sort of the rules of the balance the first rule remember is that the balance wants to stay level and it will work hard to restore a level balance and it does that in this really interesting way which is to tip an equal and opposite amount to the initial stimulus so if the initial stimulus is pleasure there's a price to pay for that which is this transient experience of pain before the the balance uh, goes back to baseline Another important rule governing this balance is that with repeated exposure to the same or similar stimulus, that initial response to the side of pleasure gets shorter and weaker, but the after response to the side of pain gets stronger and longer. So if we use the same drug over and over again, after a period of time, we will get less pleasure from it. But the price that we pay, the the after effect, the come down, gets longer and stronger. And this is why repeated exposure ultimately kind of drives us into this chronic dopamine deficit state where nothing else is enjoyable, where our focus narrows to our drug of choice. And that's the only thing that we look forward to. And then importantly, tolerance develops, meaning that we need more of that drug quantity wise or more potent forms of that drug in order to get the same effect or in order for it to just work at all. One of the things I commonly see, for example, in cannabis users is that, you know, cannabis is this miracle drug for them. It it helps them sleep. It relaxes them. It makes them, you know, more creative. Although I must say they feel more creative, whether they're actually creating is in question. And then over time, what they'll report is that it stops working as well. They need more and more to get the same effect. And then ultimately it turns on them. And this is really fascinating because what it means is that the brain has thoroughly learned and adapted to that drug such that after a while, it doesn't tip the balance at all to the side of pleasure. But as soon as it's introduced, slam, the balance will go down to the side of pain. Those neuroadaptation gremlins that our brain creates to restore balance don't go away, right? They're like waiting in the wings, ready to hop on. And as soon as we use, they tilt us. So that's why people will report 
you know, now when I use cannabis, I get paranoid. I get anxious. It does the opposite. Uh, it makes me vomit the opposite of what it used to do. And that, you know, you can find for a lot of different drugs. Opioids used chronically can actually make physical pain worse. We're seeing this here with chronic pain patients. Um, you know, any of our drugs of choice, if we really think about them, we can ask ourselves, are we, am I really even enjoying doing this anymore? I'm like caught in it. It's hard to stop, but I, I'm not sure I even like it anymore, which is why, again, dopamine is so, so essential to this, like wanting something, even when we don't necessarily like that thing. The way you describe that, I think many, if not most people listening or watching to this right now could probably find something in their life that fit that description. Uh, yes, it, of course, it could be social media, it could be sugar, it could be caffeine. Um, you know, what do you see? What I guess, what, how would you define addiction, first of all? And then from that, I think it would be useful to go into what are some of the things that you find people are probably addicted to, but because they're normalized in society, often people don't actually think of them as addictions. The one that at the top of my head is, I think a lot of the world is addicted to caffeine in a big, big way. Mm. Um, so yeah, could you maybe sort of unpack some of that and sort of start off maybe with how do you view and define addiction? Sure. So very broadly speaking, addiction is the continued compulsive use of a substance or behavior despite harm to self and or others. And if we're going to break it down further, we can talk about the four C's, control, compulsion, craving, and consequences. Control means using more than I plan to use. Compulsion is a lot of my mental real estate focused on using, a sort of narrowing of my attention as well as level of automaticity to my use. Craving is a physiologic or psychological overwhelming urge to use despite my intention not to use. And then consequences is health consequences, relationship consequences, work consequences, you name it, spiritual consequences as a result of my using, especially when I can see that there are consequences and continue to use. You'll notice, Rangan, that none of those behavioral descriptions or psychological descriptions has anything to do with the physiologic tolerance, dependence, and withdrawal that is also part of addiction, right? Needing more and more to get the same effect. When I stop using, I go into physical withdrawal or more commonly psych psychological symptoms of withdrawal, which again are anxiety, irritability, insomnia, depression, intrusive thoughts of using. But sometimes I'll have patients come to me and they'll say, well, you know, I'm not addicted to cannabis or I'm not addicted to alcohol because I can stop using. And when I stop, I don't have any withdrawal. But you don't need to have that physical dependence in order to be addicted because the addiction is happening in the reward centers of the brain where we go into that dopamine deficit state, which might only manifest as psychological symptoms of withdrawal and dependence, not necessarily physical symptoms of withdrawal and dependence. So yeah, getting to the second part of your question. So what are the things that many of us are addicted to that we don't even acknowledge? Caffeine is certainly way up there. Um, alcohol is so ubiquitous and, and so normalized. And I think many, many people 
use in ways that are not healthy, but are able to tell themselves that their use is okay. I would also put really high up on that list um, a lot of digital products and devices. And I would put up their work, you know, addiction to work. It's so socially um, rewarded, right? That sort of 24 seven, I'm on it. You know, I'm reachable wherever you want to find me, high stress. And, you know, when we add a shot of adrenaline to something that also releases dopamine, it makes it even more reinforcing. There's a fascinating study looking at rats. If you inject a rat with cocaine, slice open its brain, what you'll see is this incredible arborization of dopamine releasing neurons in the reward pathway. If you take a rat and subject it to an intense painful foot shock, you will see the identical arborization of dopamine releasing neurons in the reward pathway. In other words, we can actually probably get addicted to highly painful stimulus too in the form of work or you know, news, that's why doom scrolling kind of comes in. So there are lots of, of, of things that I think are socially sanctioned. Um, you know, again, I think work is probably, I would put at the top of the list uh, yeah. that, that we kind of don't acknowledge. Even my own attachment to my email. So I'm not on social media. I do have a phone, but I mostly keep it turned off in my bag for emergency reasons. Um, but I'm, I'm, I have to really watch myself with my email, which is sort of my work-sanctioned social media. Um, you know, and I try to take a digital Sabbath once a week, and it's really hard. But yeah. by the end of that day, I don't even want to go back to using yeah. because what, what I'll notice when I go back to my email is I'll answer the emails that need answering, and then I'll linger. I don't want to leave it. I'm sort of waiting for something good or, or reinforcing to come in or I'm continue to scroll through and read the things I've read before, you know, as a way of kind of making myself feel like, okay, I still need to be here in this space, but really I don't, yeah. I should just get out of my email and move on to the next thing. And I've developed some tricks for coping with that, but it's really hard. Yeah. I mean, what you're speaking to as well is ease of access, you know, how easy it is to access clearly makes a huge difference. And I guess work Again, going back 20, 30 years ago, when we didn't have email or the ability to have email in our pockets, you know, when you left the office, you were probably barring an emergency where someone phoned your landline, you were probably kind of done, right? You would, right. You would naturally be able to switch off. And I mm -hmm. think there's been this insidious creep. We, we, we've not really, I think with technology, for me, it's about intentional it's about intentionality. We've not really asked ourselves or many of us, what do we want this smartphone for? We we take right. it with like it's the sweet shop with all the goodies on it. And mm. it's kind of like, well, why don't you think about what do you want from it? Okay, I, I want to be able to make calls. Okay, great. You want to be able to make text messages. Okay, great. Right. What mm -hmm. else? You might want to listen to music. Okay, you know, and and actually mm -hmm. introduce the apps that you want. Right. that are going to enhance your life rather than make you a slave. And I guess mm -hmm. that email piece is, if you don't have email on your phone, it's just a hell of a lot easier to not be checking your work emails right. at the weekend. Right. Yeah, which gets to one of the, you know, so Dopamine Nation is not just about the problem, it's also about what we can do about yeah. it. And one of the recommendations, in addition to the dopamine fast, is these self-binding strategies, which is essentially creating, creating literal and metacognitive barriers between ourselves and our drug of choice, exactly what you describe, that if we 
make it harder to access to access our drug of choice, it, that little bit of a pause is often just enough to make us to allow us to decide not to use in that moment. And that's really, really important. Is there something about cheap dopamine versus expensive dopamine? And the reason I ask that question is my son really loves to play snooker. Um, so pool, billiards, he, he really enjoys that. And last year, there's a local coach. I got him a couple of lessons. He went and really enjoyed it. And I asked the coach, are you getting many kids coming these days? I said, no, we used to get so many kids coming, but he mm. says, we hardly get anyone anymore. And his theory was because people can get dopamine hits so quickly and easily on their phones these days to come and actually learn a difficult game that requires patience, practice, discipline, before you get to that sort of position where you actually gain the pleasure from it. He's saying, look, I just don't think people have got the desire anymore to work that hard for their dopamine. Now, I don't know, he's not a neuroscientist. So is any part of that accurate? Like, are we are we sort of bringing up a generation of kids now who are so used to getting their rewards quick and easy that they're going to be unwilling to do those harder, more challenging things? I mean, absolutely. I mean, this is essentially what I have seen over the last 25 years in my practice, growing numbers of kids raised in loving homes with incredible privilege and access to the best education, sports, um, you know, friends, you name it, who are increasingly narrowing their world to themselves in their rooms with their devices. And I mean, it's just, it's, it's terrifying because the result is that progressively they are shifting their joy set point to the side of pain. They're ending up in this dopamine deficit state with the gremlins camped out on the pain side of their balance, such that they need greater and greater rewards to feel anything at all. And they have more and more pain. Any little kind of you know injury, no matter how, how slight, is truly injurious to them because they have no resilience. They don't have... Uh, you know, their dopamine levels are not at healthy baselines. They're inundated with dopamine and um, just living essentially in their lizard brain, which is that, you know, limbic part of the brain where the reward pathway is uh, mostly located. So I do think this is, you know, this is of great concern. And many of these young people will come in, uh, you know, endorsing anxiety and depression and thinking that I'm going to prescribe them a pill or that we're going to do some kind of talk therapy or we're going to find out their trauma, you know, what led to it. I'm like, no, you know, I think what led to it is that you're playing video games all day. And if you would stop that for a reasonable enough length of time for those neuroadaptation gremlins to hop off and for your your, you know, your own brain to start to regenerate its own dopamine, you would feel better. Even further, if you go and press on the pain side of your balance and get off the couch and turn off, you know, all of the devices and go outside and go for a walk, something that's really challenging for a lot of uh, yeah. people today, you know, you will actually, by pressing on the pain side of the balance, you will tell your body, oh, I need to start to upregulate my own 
dopamine production, right? Because then the gremlins hop on the pleasure side. It works both ways. Um, and that that will create a more resilient, happier brain. But super hard to get people to realize that because in the moment, they feel like, oh, no, you know, being online and social media and video games, that, that relieves my anxiety and depression. What they can't see is that in an iterative process over time, that's actually what's causing the anxiety and depression. I mean, this is something that really worries me, if I'm honest. I, you know, as a doctor looking out at society, but as a father of two young children, this has been something that has really occupied a lot of my brain space for the past few yeah. years. Maybe every year ago, a, a patient of mine, a young adolescent girl who had tried to harm herself, and I won't sort of recount the entire story now, but essentially the way I managed to help her was primarily by helping her to not use her phone and social media as much. And it, there was a, right. a ripple effect started in her life yeah. where six months later, mm -hmm. she was unrecognizable completely yeah. happy, grounded, mm -hmm. connected kids. And that was probably intervention number one was mm -hmm. reducing her phone use. That's right. You that's know, right. is that something you've seen as well? Oh, absolutely. So that that's the prescription from Dopamine Nation. And it's something that I've used repeatedly in my clinical work. The first intervention when I have patients come in with dep depression, anxiety, insomnia, inattention, I say, let's eliminate your drug of choice, whatever it is, whether it's social media, video games, cannabis, alcohol, we're going to take it away for a whole month. Why a month? Because a month is typically the minimum amount of time it takes for the brain to restore dopamine levels back to healthy baseline. I also warn them that in the first two weeks of abstention, or the dopamine fast, they're gonna feel worse before they feel better. Why? Because those gremlins are camped out on the side of pain and they're in a dopamine deficit state, which means when they're not using their drug, they're in withdrawal. So I tell them you're gonna be more anxious, more depressed, restless. You're gonna have intrusive thoughts of wanting to use your phone, play video games, use cannabis, drink alcohol. But if you can just get through those first two weeks, by weeks three and four, the light really does come out and you will notice yourself feeling better. And almost universally, that is what happens. And I've been doing this for 25 years. So I really, I really believe that this works because I have a huge sample. And exactly what you described with your, you know, young, young patient on social media, you know, patients will say it's hard, but they definitely have reduced anxiety, depression, yeah. insomnia, all of it at a month. Not only that, they have insight because now they're able to really look back and see the true impact of their use on their lives, which is really hard to do when we're yeah. in it. It's only by changing something in that biological system, forcing our brains to start to regenerate our own dopamine that we can look back and say, oh my goodness, that's surreal. I can't believe yeah. I was so invested in that. And, and that, that I think is, is a second critical point because that's empowering for an individual, isn't it? That gives them yes. a sense of control, a sense of agency that, oh, I get it. When I engage in these behaviors, my mood goes right. down, I get depressed, I get right. anxious. When I restart again, or when I, when I come off it, I feel better. When I restart again, I get worse. And it doesn't mean you're going to get 
certainly through through what I've seen, it doesn't mean the first time you're going to get it right. You're going to stop and then you're all good. No, but it's a it's a process of education each time. And every time you right. go back, you keep reminding yourself, oh, do you know what? I feel better when I'm actually not on this stuff. That's right. And I always frame it to patients as an experiment. Yeah. I said, you know what? You're the scientist. This is the experiment called your life. Let's gather data. The best way to know how, to system, how a system is working is to change something in that system and see what happens. So the experiment that we're going to do is you're going to eliminate this drug for a period of time and see what happens. And my hypothesis is that you will feel initially much worse because you will be in withdrawal and craving. But if you can make it a long enough period to restore homeostasis, you will feel better. And when patients see that for themselves and experience that for themselves, I no longer have to convince yeah. them that it's a worthy project. One of the most common questions I'll get asked from family members, what can I do to get my loved one into treatment or to get them to see that they have a problem? I said, you know, the dopamine fast is almost the best thing that they yeah. can do because once they do that themselves, they'll be able to connect the dots and then they will be motivated to make the change in their life. Now, Rangan, you know, that you know, abruptly stopping your drug of choice is not something you would recommend in somebody who's yeah. at life at risk for life-threatening alcohol withdrawal, benzodiazepine withdrawal, or opioid withdrawal. Those those individuals may indeed need medically monitored detoxification in order to get into a dopamine fast, which means that they might need a slow taper or another medicine to prevent life-threatening withdrawal. But for the vast majority of us, especially those of us who are addicted to our devices, stopping cold turkey is perfectly fine. You use the term drug of choice. So whichever that patient's drug of choice is, they would try and go on this four-week dopamine fast. Right. I would love you with your 25-year clinical experience to paint a picture of what variety of drugs have you applied this dopamine fast to? Because I suspect mm -hmm. it's not just the, the, the kind of classic ones that we think in our brains. Right. Well, I'll just start with alcohol, nicotine, cannabis, cocaine, methamphetamine, and other stimulants, uh, opioids, benzodiazepines. Although again, with opioids and benzodiazepines, some of those people need a medically managed taper and stopping abruptly would not be appropriate. Um, but then there's the whole raft of behavioral addictions. So these are, you know, uh, processes and often food is put in this category, but food would include sugar, processed foods, empty carbohydrates, um, along with processed food, what we commonly refer to as, you know, junk foods, um, gambling, which comes in many different forms now, including kind of high class investments in cryptocurrency, which is looked at as sort of really cool. And, you know, sort of that's not gambling because, you know, that's, I don't know, that's what stockbrokers do or something, you know, Stanford, Stanford undergraduates, that's what they do. But, you know, frankly, that's obviously a form of gam gambling hood interfaces like the Robin Hood interface are, you know, know how to make that addictive, right? Um, with, you know, flashing lights and congratulations. And what, what is the Robin Hood, what, what is the Robin oh, Hood interface? So, you know, typically if you wanted to, and again, this is not my, but money is not my area of expertise, but if you wanted to buy shares in something, you needed a broker, but now there are apps that right. sort of take that away and you, you can just do it yourself. So in a way it's like kind of like a democratization in a way of, 
you know, investment, which is a good thing in many ways I can see, but it also means that the average person with limited education and the potential for addiction is on there, you know, you know, gambling away, you know, the, the, the family home for cryptocurrency, right? Yeah. So potentially super dangerous. Um, all of the stuff, pornography, anything related to sex, much of it now happening online, games, gamification, video games, YouTube, um, pretty much anything online um, has the potential but for addiction. Basically what you're saying is pretty much anything that people now <laughs> use to distract themselves from their lives, to get a bit of relief, to get some pleasure. Yeah, It sounds like, again, going back to what you said at the start, right? It's about that balance piece where there is you know, you get, you want to get that dopamine hit, but you don't want to do it so much that you start to yes. tip the seesaw where it gets locked. And then you're in this dopamine deficit states. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, and, and what I'm arguing for in a way is sort of a new form of, of asceticism, you know, asceticism being the practice of um, eschewing or avoiding intense pleasures and actually inviting painful practices into your life. But, you know, the asceticism that would be considered painful in the modern age is literally for some people just getting up off the couch and going outside of their homes for 30 minutes a day and walking around. I mean, that's an unplugged, unplugged walking around in their neighborhood. That is painful for some people because of the extent to which we are sedentary, the extent to which we are plugged in, the extent to which we are overstimulated. Yeah. Um, so, but I really do believe that, that, you know, it's a major cause of our unhappiness and the epidemiologic data would bear that out over the last 30 years, we've seen massive increases in depression, anxiety, suicide in rich nations, more than in poor nations, in nations where people have access to all of this abundance. Um, a world survey happiness report that was done in 2018, surveyed 128 countries and found that people were across the board more unhappy in 2018 than they were in 2008, with people living in rich nations being the most unhappy, right? So it's a yeah. paradox, but it's because we've reached this dopamine tipping point. Yeah. Just taking a quick break to give a shout out to Athletic Greens, who are bringing you today's show. Now, when we talk about improving our health, of course, nutrition is really important. But I think the way we feed ourselves each day can also be considered an act of self-care and self-love. When we feed ourselves the right nutrients, we take care of ourselves. We improve our physical health, our mental health, and our emotional resilience. Now, in an ideal world, of course, I would prefer it if everyone got all of their nutrition from real whole food. But I know from 20 years now seeing patients, that a lot of us struggle to consistently do that. Busy schedules, poor sleep, too much stress, not having enough time to cook means that many of us can often have suboptimal levels of key nutrients. That is why I am a fan of good quality whole food supplements like AG1 by Athletic Greens. One tasty scoop contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food source ingredients, including a multivitamin, multi-mineral, probiotic, green superfood blends, and more in one convenient daily serving. And I think that's one of the main reasons I like and recommend AG1. It is a really simple way to start each day 
and give your body the nutrition it needs. I've been taking Athletic Greens for around three years now, I think, and I genuinely think it is one of the best whole food supplements out there. So if you want to take something each morning as an insurance policy to make sure that you are meeting your nutritional needs, I can highly recommend it. For listeners of the show, if you go to athleticgreens.com forward slash live more, you can access a brand new special offer where they are offering my audience a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs. Vitamin D is an important nutrient for many functions in the body, including our immune system function. Many of us have suboptimal levels, especially during the winter, so I think this is a great offer to take advantage of. You can see all the details of this offer by going to athleticgreens.com forward slash live more. Blue Box are also sponsoring today's show. Good quality sleep is absolutely essential for many aspects of our health. And we all know that life feels better when we have slept better. Our mood, our focus, our energy, as well as our ability to interact with our loved ones. Now, as a doctor, these days, one of the biggest obstacles to sleep I see is light. In particular, too much artificial lights in the evenings. And this is where Blue Blocks can really help. They have a fabulous range of products to help us sleep better. They make some quite brilliant blue light blocking glasses, which I myself have been using for over two years now, and I continue to use them. They really can make a difference to the quality of your sleep, especially if you are spending time on screens in the evening. And I think at this time of year, as the days become shorter and the nights become longer, it is even more important. All their glasses come in non-prescription, prescription and reading options. And I think so much of their glasses that my wife and both of my children have their own pairs. They are a bit more expensive than other companies, but I genuinely think that the extra cost is worth it. They are high quality lenses made in optics laboratories in Australia. They ship worldwide really quickly and enable easy returns and exchanges. If you want to give them a go, and I would really recommend that you do, they are offering my podcast listeners 20% off anything you order on their website. They also have other fantastic sleep-promoting products, such as low blue light bulbs and 100% blackout sleep masks. Just use the discount code LIVEMORE20 at the checkout for 20% off, or go direct to blueblocks.com forward slash livemore. That's B-L-U blox.com forward slash live more and the discounts will be automatically applied. It's this apparent contradiction that the more money right. we get, the more material possessions we get, the unhappier we become, the more depressed, mm -hmm. the more anxious, the more fearful. And I guess we all know those kind of simple uh, pleasures, whether it's going camping or going for a long walk in nature with a partner or your family or a friend. You know, we know how good we feel afterwards, how free yeah. we feel in our minds. Yet it seems like the hardest thing to do these days for so many of us. I And, and I'm sure the smartphones are part of that because... You're just sitting there. You can have all the stimulation you mm -hmm. want on that phone. I, I, you know, I, I think I first said this on my conversation with Ariana Huffington about a year ago on the podcast. I said to her that 
for me, one of the problems with smartphones, for all their benefits, is that I strongly believe they are fragmenting the most important relationships in our lives. Because no human being around you can compete right. with what is on that thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, when you have patients who come in who, because a smartphone is very hard to exist in life now without a smartphone for a variety That's of different right. reasons. So how do you handle that with patients who might have a smartphone addiction? Well, again, I think that the most important initial intervention is a period of abstinence from the drug of choice. So if it is a smartphone addiction, the intervention, the treatment will be to put that phone away for a month. And the two reasons to do that, just to highlight them again, are to restore healthy dopamine pathways, right? To allow the gremlins to hop off so that homeostasis can be restored. Why is that so important? Because when we're in that dopamine deficit state, more modest pleasures are no longer rewarding. So I want to get back to something that you said earlier about, you know, how those pleasures of camping or just being with family. The truth is that those things are not pleasurable when we're hooked on highly dopaminergic substances and behaviors because they can't compete, as you just said. So in order to make those more modest rewards rewarding again, we need to abstain from the highly dopaminergic substances and behaviors that have essentially hijacked our reward pathway. So again, the first step is to abstain um, in order to reset reward pathways, but also to be able to look back and see true cause and effect. And that's really got to be the first intervention. And, And it's not about desire being bad or even about intoxicants being bad across the board. Yeah. It's about how we use them with what frequency, yeah. you know, with what potency, so that after we have a level of ple- pleasure pain balance, if we go back to using, we have to make sure to leave enough time in between for the gremlins to hop off the pain side and for homeostasis to be restored. And we want to inv- avoid intoxicants that press our pleasure pain balance too hard and too fast yeah. to the side of pain, because once we're doing that, we're accumulating these great big Arnold Schwarzenegger gremlins on the pain side to bring us level again. And then we're essentially at war with our gremlins. So the trick is to restore homeostasis with the dopamine fast, and then to stay in a supple dynamic relationship with our pleasure pain balance so that we are ingesting rewarding things in modest doses infrequently at the same time that we're inviting painful activities into our lives in order to get those gremlins to hop on the pleasure side, right? Which is essentially um, telling our bodies, oh, there's a painful stimulus here. I now need to make my own dopamine and serotonin and norepinephrine and endocannabinoids and endoopioids in order to counteract that painful stimulus. And that's good because that keeps us in this place where you know, we are not just shutting down our dopamine factories. We've got our own dopamine factories running, you know, making that feel good hormone. As you describe there that compared to what is on our smartphone, a walk in nature with a loved one or going camping actually does feel a bit boring and dry compared to all the excitement and colors and vibrancy we can get on this phone. I thought of sugar as well, in the sense mm-hmm. that the way that the food industry has hijacked our taste buds. Right. If 
our kids and us as adults are constantly having highly processed foods, if we're having all these super sweet, um, you know, uh, food-like products, I guess, that have been made by the food industry, then suddenly a beautiful ripe peach on a summer's day Mm-hmm. It's bland. Right. right? Because, very well put. Yeah. You know, it's 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 very similar, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's the theory of relativity yeah. with regards to pleasure and pain. And they really are relative where our brain is constantly recalibrating in response to the stimuli in our environment. I mean, again, that that ability to be adaptive to external and internal stimuli is part of, you know, the genius of our species and our ability to have really dominated this planet for so many millions of years. But that is our downfall as well, because this constant recalibration um, to pleasure and to pain in a world where we're insulated from pain and exposed to incredible overabundance of pleasure means that nothing's pleasurable anymore. You know, nothing's, nothing has pleasure. You are a parent like me. Um, I think your kids might be a bit older than mine from what I can tell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, my current approach, I, I know, and you know, I'm, I'm interested in your view on this. Yes. Of course, I'm always thinking about what I can do to help my patients. I'm also thinking about what I can do to help my kids. Of course. And having seen the problems with phones and a lot of my teenage patients... Hearing from my friends who tell me that the biggest source of their arguments with their teenagers is always to do with their smartphone usage. I have been very reluctant to uh, embrace technology with my children. So my son is 11. He has just started secondary school or high school. And he did not have a phone at all until this summer. And I felt strongly that you know, at nine, ten, I just thought, I, I just don't really see how this is going to benefit him. He did want one. He said all his friends had one. And for me as a parent, as I'm sure you may have faced this, it's very difficult because you don't want your children to be social outcasts. Right. Yet at the same time, you are cautious over what they, or certainly I was very cautious about what he's been introduced to. Now, I ended up caving in the summer in the sense, I say caving, no, it was an intentional decision. Mm-hmm. You know, the high school's, you know, it's a bit further away. All of his peers have a smartphone, every single one. Um, that's how they communicate. And I thought, you know, it's not yeah. really not fair of me to not allow him to, you know, be with his tribe in that way. But we have set yeah. some uh, ground rules. I've got to say, he has been exquisite at following them so far. So I touch wood Great. that that continues. Yeah. But simple things like, the phone is not allowed in his room. Mm-hmm. It always has to be used uh, in the kitchen area where other people are around. You can't take it somewhere to go off. This mm-hmm. may sound quite draconian, but we, we're doing what works for us as a family. And I would right. never cast judgment on how someone else decides to um, parent their kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, so far, so good. But what I've decided to do beyond phones is because my wife and I were talking about uh, gaming. Again, a lot of his friends play video games and they play online together. Mm -hmm. Now, we've not gone down that route because Mm -hmm. I just think once you open that door, for me, it's going to be very hard to close it. Yeah. 
And another thing that I think has happened across the world, certainly in the Western world, over the last year and a half, even schools that were not really using technology much because of all the lockdowns, screen time now has become a part of education for a lot of schools. So I said to my wife, look, he's getting enough screen time already just to do his education. I don't want his leisure time to be on a screen as well. So a couple of things there. Um, and the wider point for me is that it's it's like I say with food, you can't control the environment when you step outside your front door. So you're having to use That's willpower right. everywhere you go. So mm-hmm. my philosophy has always been try not to bring foods that you don't want to eat into your house because mm-hmm. then you're not using willpower in the house. And I feel I'm sort of creating a an almost like a dopamine cave or a, what's the opposite <laughs> what's the opposite of dopamine like a almost a cave at home where actually there are no quick yeah. and easy dopamine fixes available right. at home yes. what do you think is that approach is that going to get me in trouble in a few years or do you think potentially this may have legs so um that approach is essentially what i do recommend in my book dopamine nation it's also the approach that our family followed. And right. again, I, I, I want to echo your statement. This is not a judgment of how other yeah. people parent. This is, you know, how, what we found works in our family. And also what I've seen work for many, many patients struggling with compulsive overconsumption that we essentially in a dopamine overloaded world have to change our immediate environment if we're going to survive. And that means keeping high dopamine substances and behaviors out of reach Um, I think it's essential that kids under the age of um, 10, certainly, and even arguably under the age of 12, do not have access to their own devices. And that when they are on their own devices, that it's heavily monitored by their caregivers, whoever those are. And that's for so many reasons. But most important of all, that in that crucial time of, you know, the early developing brain, we want to make sure that they develop the social skills and the coping strategies that are healthy and adaptive to last them a lifetime. And that means learning how to interact in real life with real people, right? Learning how to be in their bodies and do physical things and connect the brain and the body. Because everything that happens online is this disconnected experience where we're floating around in our heads, we forget our bodies. It's not in real life. Yes, there's interaction that happens between people online. And some of that's really good and meaningful and complex. And even video games can involve, you know, um, good social collaborative skills, but the medium itself is so incredibly potent, reinforcing and potentially addictive that it's going to usurp any other types of learning. There's a very famous experiment where it turns out if you put rats into a very complex maze where they have lots of stuff to explore and they have running wheels and they have other rats, that um, if you examine their brains after exposure to that complex maze, you will see this incredible arborization of dopamine releasing neurons in the reward pathway, just like you would see in response to drugs. But if you then pre-treat those rats with methamphetamine, a highly addictive drug, and then release them into the maze, what you see is no additional learning as a result of exposure to that maze. In other words, that pre-treatment with methamphetamine is such an intense stimulus that it essentially usurps the brain's ability to get anything out of 
learning in a complex environment. And I think the same thing can be said for us when it comes to these digital online products. So we have to protect our children. We have to create that bubble. We have to make sure they have friends in real life, uh, sports that they're doing, creative, sustained attention, systems for organizing themselves. Because once they go online, if they don't already have that foundation, they will not learn them, or at least it will be extremely difficult. Um, and then, you know, I agree with you that, you know, a lot of social stuff happens online. So, of course, we don't want our kids to be excluded. On the other hand, you know, those kids, like you say, at school, I mean, you, you think, I think if you asked your son, has have you played video games? Of course he has, because he's done it you know, in between class time or at lunch, or maybe even during class time, you know, if not with his device with other people's devices. So we don't need to worry about our kids not having literacy, computer literacy, or not having yeah. computer exposure, because they have lots and lots of time that we don't supervise anymore. And once they become teenagers, all bets are off. We have zero control, which is why that first decade is really key to laying down, you know, the kinds of reward pathways and learning pathways that we want, but also having important discussions about what is healthy digital use, you yeah. know, what is appropriate digital etiquette, what are the values in our family and what, you know, how, um, how, how do we expect you to conduct yourself online yeah. and vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, this device, which is a drug, by the way, which is a potential drug. And then Rangan, one last thing I want to say is that Everybody comes to these drugs with differing degrees of vulnerability. We have four kids. Our older three, when they finally got a phone in high school, and high school here is um, you know, starting around age essentially 14, three of them were able to handle it. Our youngest hasn't been able to, and we've had to take the phone away. So you give it to take it away if your kid can't handle it. Yeah. Um, and essentially, he was just on it all the time you know he wasn't paying attention in class he couldn't break away from this device he was that kid um so it's also important to acknowledge that there are differing degrees of vulnerability the, the most kids will probably be able to handle it and figure it out but probably about 10 to 15 percent of kids are going to get into real yeah. trouble and those kids we can't ignore yeah no i appreciate you sharing that actually coming back to your book and i, and I, I did say this at the start but it is one of the favorite books of mine that I've read recently. It is oh, fantastically uh, written. And I'll I tell you, Anna, what I love about it the most, you know, I love science. But this is so much more than science. This, to me, speaks of a human being with incredible life experience, a clinician with a lot of practical clinical experience. And you sort of blend in science with you know, real life human experience, because it doesn't always connect. I found as a clinician that scientific studies don't always help me one-on-one -on -one with my patients. And I, I love the way you blended it all together. And if I may say, I kind of feel that there's quite a philosophical component to this book as well. There's lots of really good kind of lessons for life. So mm. I just want to appreciate you and acknowledge you for that. I think it really is fabulous. Thank you. I am very touched by that. It means a lot. Thank you. No, not at all. I, I, I really, I, I hope everyone goes out to get it. It's, it's, it's a brilliant read. Um, I want to move on to something you, you wrote right at the start of the book. In I think it's the introduction. And you put a quote there from Kent Dunnington. Hmm. 
Persons with severe addictions are among those contemporary prophets that we ignore to our own demise, for they show us who we truly are. Mm. I read it, I underlined it, and I was immediately drawn to two conversations I've had on this podcast before, one with Rich Roll, who I know you've been mm -hmm. on Rich's show. Yeah. Um, Rich is obviously, um, I say obviously, if people are familiar with Rich, he in the past suffered with addiction to alcohol. I also had a conversation with a singer-songwriter called Benjamin Francis Lethwich. Again, he had real problems with addiction. He's been sober for, I think, three or four years now. And I find in the conversations I had with Rich and Benjamin, I find a real authenticity and truth that you don't often get. Mm -hmm. and, and I feel that there's something about these people and the walls that they've come against, come up against in their life, that's really forced them to confront what it truly means to live a happy, peaceful, content life. Mm -hmm. And I think that quote kind of sums it up beautifully. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I agree with you. And, you know, I I came into treating people with addiction reluctantly. It's not something I set out to do. But um, really, they've become sort of my spiritual heroes, people in recovery, because of the tremendous courage and fortitude and tenacity that it takes to get into recovery, especially in this dopamine overloaded world, and to maintain that recovery. And what's striking beyond all else to me is the incredible humility um, that people in recovery bring to their own lives, uh, to, to other people, this kind of acknowledgement of, of suffering and struggling, which I think is so often, um, you know, hidden in our everyday discourse. I'll never forget early on when I went to a medical meeting um, of the California Society of Addiction Medicine, which was um, composed of doctors treating addiction medicine. And to, I did not realize that many of those individuals were themselves in recovery from addiction. And I had been to so many medical meetings and I actually didn't really care for medical meetings. It's a lot of doctors standing around talking about how great they are and how much, you know, how much they know. And I would always leave those meetings sort of feeling like, God, what have I done today? You know, what a, what a schlep I am, you know, compared to all these brilliant people. And then I went to this meeting of addiction medicine doctors and um, there was a lunch, you know, thing to go to. And I went there and the first doc gets up and he starts talking about his cocaine addiction and how he would steal. And I mean, I, I, I about fell off my chair. I was like, is this really a doctor who's talking about his addiction and what he did in the past, you know, in the service of his, I mean, I was astounded and yet it was so incredibly beautiful because it was like, wow, this is a space where we can all be our messed up selves. Like we don't have to pretend anymore that our lives are perfect. And it was just, it was so attractive and compelling to me that I just had this feeling, yeah, this is, these are the, these are my wounded warriors, yeah. right? These are, these are the people that I, I want to affiliate with. And, and, and that's been, you know, a continual sort of draw for me in the treatment of people with addiction is the other wonderful people who do this work, many of whom are in recovery themselves. And just, you know, the incredible wisdom and humility that, you know, having an addiction and then getting into recovery, you know, gives people access to, and also the spiritual aspect, which is, 
you would think spirituality would be a big part of the practice of medicine, but actually it's not. Um, you know, we're sort of not even allowed to say, you know, God or religion or ask people about that. But in addiction medicine, you can still talk about that. It's, a, you know, it's a it's an important piece. And so that's been a real draw for me too. a kind of. Yeah, you know, science is so important, but yeah. there's a lot that science can't answer. And it's great to have a, a space and a way of talking about the things that science can't solve. Um, and so, you know, I'm grateful for for that too in the field of addiction medicine. I imagine that doctor who shared his cocaine addiction with you and other colleagues, I would imagine that him being able to do that, him going through that and hopefully coming out the other side of that, there's no doubt in my mind that that would absolutely enhance his ability to not only connect with his patients, but also help them afterwards. Right. You know, and it's, I think that's, that stuff's important. What you said about spirituality there, um, you know, in addiction medicine, and you say it in addiction medicine, but like, I think to me as a primary care practitioner, Addiction plays a role, low-grade addiction actually plays a role in so many of my patients. Mm, yeah. So many of their, in inverted commas, lifestyle behaviors that they are trying to um, reduce, they are low-grade addictions. Mm -hmm. Or the fact that they're getting stressed out and burnt out and they're up too late and they want to help sleeping, actually at, at its core comes down to them being in a dopamine deficit state and yeah, actually they're, they're yeah. engaging in practices that actually the answer isn't necessarily you know me helping them with sleep hygiene or you know prescribing something to help them if we're looking at real root cause in this kind of digital dopamine era of abundance it's kind of like what you're doing i think it's relevant to pretty much all of us Oh, I, I absolutely agree. And obviously as a primary care doctor, you know, you, I'm guessing like many primary care doctors, you went into it because you cared about having relationships yeah. with people through time and you care about preventive medicine, not just about, you know, treating illness once it comes, but actually preventing people from getting ill. 70% of the global deaths today are caused by modifiable risk factors. The top three are diet, lack of exercise and smoking. So we really have reached a tipping point when we are dying because of our behaviors. And I really do think that the problem of compulsive overconsumption or addiction is the modern plague that we will be dealing with for the next hundreds of years. Well, ironically, I would say that all the restrictions that have been put in place across the world well, in many countries across the world over the past, what, 18, 20 months now, they've driven a lot of people into more isolation. Isolation was already a major, major problem that's got a lot worse. Loneliness, being by yourself. And I guess a lot of these addictions are kind of solo pursuits, aren't they? When we're, when we're not mm -hmm. connected to our tribe and our families and our communities, we seek to... I guess, fill that void with something else. And for many people, that's kind of where addiction is born. It's it's both born there and it begets. So isolation 
addiction is born in isolation and but addiction also begets isolation i think it's important to remember yeah. that many people with incredible families and wonderful spouses and amazing friends and a super social network can get addicted um, and through that process of getting addicted then pull away from the people in their lives so although i agree with you that you know not having healthy attachments is a risk factor for for addiction it's also true that with all the healthy attachments in the world, you can still get addicted. And that when you do, it will cause you to isolate and pull away. The other important thing is, although I absolutely agree with you that COVID and quarantine has been isolating and devastating for people across the world and has caused many individuals to either become addicted or relapse or die from their addiction yeah. or start an addiction. I also feel like there's a very large swath of people, including many of my patients, for whom quarantine was a saving grace. It allowed them to slow down in their lives. Um, you know, if they were living with family, it allowed them to refocus on family, spend more time together, strengthen that sense of belonging to a tribe. Um, and many people got into better recovery from their addictions than they had in, in decades because they weren't constantly being stimulated by our sort of, you know, dopamine overloaded world where you can't even go to the grocery store without, you know, being told to buy this or buy that, you know, highly reinforcing um, substance. So COVID was a very fascinating experiment in that way, because again, um, definitely very bad for some people, but for others, um, a real respite. Yeah. I, I would echo that in my own experience as well, that, some people, the isolation has been devastating, but for other people, not commuting for two hours right. a day suddenly gave them two hours to either go for Exercise, a walk before work right. or spend some time with their partner or their kids. You know, That's right. so I guess it depends on who you who you are, what your lifestyle was, what yes. your job was, how much you commuted, all those kind of yes. things, which mm -hmm. I guess speaks to how there's no one size fits all in all of this, particularly in addiction medicine. I'm sure that there are, you know, everything has to be tailored to that individual. That's right. You know, on one, one of the, I loved all the chapters in the book, but one I really enjoyed was towards the end was this one on honesty, radical honesty. And that's something I think when Benjamin Francis Lefwich came to the studio a few months ago, and this is the singer songwriter who had struggled for much of his life with addiction. One thing I was struck with was the kind of raw, brutal honesty. Mm. I got this sense that I'm not going to say anything that is not completely aligned with who I am. Mm -hmm. And that chapter was brilliant. Can you talk a little bit about honesty and why did you write that? Why is it so important? And how can even people who consider ourselves to be non-addicts, how can we uh, benefit from more honesty in our lives? One of the recurring themes I have seen in my patients in recovery from addiction is how important honesty, telling the truth is to their recovery. And I've seen it again and again and again, even in patients who haven't gotten into recovery through Alcoholics Anonymous or another 12-step group. And those groups really um, emphasize the importance of honesty to recovery. And so people who are in, in those organizations, they know that's part of um, the philosophy, but even people who have gotten into recovery on their own, um, almost universally, they will say, oh yeah, I can't, 
I can't lie. I can't lie about anything. And I became really fascinated by that because I thought, what, what is it about telling the truth? Obviously, there's the thing about not lying about drug use, right? Yeah. Which would be important. But it, it's not even that. It's beyond that. It's not lying about anything at all. I had this one patient who said, oh, yeah, when I was using, I would lie about stuff that didn't even matter. Like if I was getting lunch at McDonald's and somebody would call me, I would say I was at Burger King. If I was at Burger King, I would say I was at McDonald's. He said it didn't even make any sense. I was just in the lying habit. So part of recovery, and I would contend part of living a good life, is embracing radical honesty, telling the truth about not just important things or big things, but even about little things in the course of our everyday. And and I have different theories that I sort of explicate in the book to why that is. One of them is um, that I think that kind of radical honesty creates true intimacy. You know, we talk so much about relationships being the antidote to addiction, but we don't ever talk about how to get into those um, intimate relationships. And one of the ways to do it is to be truthful, you know, with the people who we care about, even when being truthful means disclosing shameful things that we've done or aspects of ourselves that, um, that we would rather not people know. And intimacy, true intimacy, releases dopamine, right? So there you have a a natural source of dopamine that can fight with these unhealthy sources of dopamine. The other thing that's true also about telling the truth about everything, or what I call radical honesty, is that it allows us to develop a truthful autobiographical narrative of our lives. And the stories of our lives are really the only way that we have to document lived time. And if we are not telling true stories about ourselves, then we're liable to perpetuate the same mistakes going forward. And we also then don't have access to truthful objective data to make informed future decisions. So for example, when I have a patient who comes in who tells what I would call the victim narrative. Everything is always somebody else's fault. I know those people are not in recovery and they're not going to get into recovery unless they start acknowledging their contribution to the problem. So being able to tell a story that hews as closely as possible to what is actually true in the world is really, really important for being able to actually see that truth, to own our part and to make informed decisions going forward. And then another piece of it is that I really do think that intentionally and mindfully telling the truth upregulates the prefrontal cortex, which is that gray matter part of our brain right behind our foreheads involved in storytelling, future planning, and delayed gratification. We know that the prefrontal cortex interacts with the reward pathways in the lower brain regions, and that when those two parts of the brain are talking to each other, we are better able to control over consumption to delay gratification and to avoid the pitfalls of addiction. And I, there's a fascinating experiment um, that I detail in the book where um, scientists use transcranial magnetic stimulation to upregulate function of the prefrontal cortex in order to decrease lying in their subjects who were engaged in a dice rolling game yeah. where they could lie to get more money. And it was fascinating because by just by stimulating the prefrontal cortex, they could get people to lie less. And by the way, we're all natural liars. People just lie. They tend to lie a little bit most of the time. And they tell themselves it doesn't matter. It's little things, you know. 
But what happens when they when they stimulated the prefrontal cortex was people lied less. So I went to the, the researchers and I said, well, you know, if stimulating the prefrontal cortex causes people to lie less, could lying less conversely stimulate the prefrontal cortex? And he thought, sure, you know, that's perfectly possible. And I think that may be what's happening when we are intentionally, proactively monitoring our lieometer or our truthometer and trying not to lie. What we're doing is we're strengthening our prefrontal cortex and we're strengthening the connections between our prefrontal cortex and our dopamine reward pathway, and then enabling ourselves to be more resilient in the face of temptations that we're all confronted with every day. Yeah. No, no, I, I, I love the way you look at that. I think radical honesty, all of us trying to be more honest, as you say, you know, humans are lying machines. Like we, um, we, and it becomes a habit before you know it. Like, I don't know if you've had much experience of this. Um, of course it's not exclusive to people from immigrant families at all, but you know, I, my parents grew up in India. They, you know, emigrated to the UK for all kinds of reasons. And I, like many uh, of my peers in that situation, you know, often have a conflict of identity where we have a kind of traditional Indian Asian upbringing at home. And at school, we have our sort of Western friends who have got, let's say, a slightly different set of values to the values you have at home. And so, by the time you're a teenager, you get pretty good at <laughs> lying and you are doing it so often. I'm not saying everyone does this, right, to be really uh-huh. clear. But I know from other people in my boat, um, other people who also are kids of immigrant parents, there's a big problem with these double lives that people lead. And I feel, the way the way I look at it is that you're whole when you're born. You, 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 you know who you are is who you are. And then, bit by bit, and I think this often starts at school. We start being someone who we're not in order to fit in. So a fault line starts to show up in who you are. So there's a fracture now, mm-hmm. and that keeps going. And then you start lying as a teenager, and that fracture becomes bigger and bigger. And then I, I feel, and I certainly felt it in my own life, that a lot of these kind of compulsive behaviors are just are an attempt to repair that fault line and get back mm-hmm. to equilibrium. Mm-hmm. Um, that is not based on any science. That's based on just me <laughs> philosophically trying to to look at this. But I found, to be brutally honest, as I become a better truth teller, like I think mm-hmm. it's something I've really worked hard on in the last few years, even white lies. I don't like telling mm-hmm. white lies anymore. Like if I can't right. make a work function because right. I'm too busy, I don't say, oh, I've got another engagement anymore like mm-hmm. I used to. Mm-hmm. I say, guys, actually, I'm just too busy at the moment. Or actually, right. that's at a weekend and I'm going to spend that with my children. So I'm really sorry. Right. And it is the most freeing thing mm. in the world when you tell mm-hmm. the truth and you're accepted for it. Yeah, yeah. It's so true. I mean, we we really want we want to be the same person on the outside that we are on the inside and we want people to see us and accept us and love us for our truest selves. And of course, we think when we share something that we assume people, you know, will consider to be um 
you know, a fault of ours or something unattractive. We assume people will go running, but in fact, the opposite often happens that people feel closer to us because they're not so alone either in their own limitations and their, in their own brokenness. So, um, and, and I do agree with you that there's, you know, um, Winnicott, a famous psychoanalyst has uh, written about this concept of the false self and how the constant cultivation of this false self, first of all, takes a lot of energy, right? Because you have to like remember what you said and who you're pretending to be. Um, but it also creates this um, very painful alienation from ourselves, where then we can't you know, be authentically ourselves in the moment. And then we're really disconnected from our lives. So what telling the truth, radically telling the truth, as you have discovered about things large and small. And by the way, I work on this too, and I learned it from my patients and I've worked on it for the last 20 years and it's still a work in progress. Yeah. But it allows us, yes, to be to reconnect with our authentic selves, which is really important, I think, especially in this strange, surreal and digital world, which often can feel like we're living in a matrix, especially when so much of the online information isn't true you know, where people have these curated personas or maybe are even putting out a curated false persona online, which can really lead to terrible feelings of depersonalization and derealization. And I think even lead to suicidal thoughts as people feel that they're just not real in the world and they don't know who they are or that even if they know who they are, other people don't know the real them. So I think Telling the truth is really fundamental to grounding yeah. ourselves, you know, on the earth with other people in our own identities and, and being able to then um, be in the moment, which can often be painful, but allow us to authentically, you know, unfold our experience in the moment rather than trying to manage a persona to make a certain impression to give us this false illusion that we can actually control the world, which of course we can't do, but we're, we, we keep trying to do yeah. that. How hard was it for you to be this open and vulnerable? Because you've revealed a lot about yourself in Dopamine Nation. Uh, I think it completely adds to the book uh, hugely. It connects the reader to you and your work hugely but what was that like for you was there ever was there any part of you that was like ah, should I put this in should I keep this out <laughs> oh my god pretty much the whole book I would say in the two two months before it was about to come out I think I was in a constant state of panic I also talk in the book about you know my struggles with my relationship with my mother which has been yeah. a source of both shame and pain for me in my life and my mother hadn't read the book and didn't know what I was putting in it. And um, I was, I was just really, really scared and anxious and um, it was hard. It was really hard, but you know, I felt that my patients had been so brave in sharing their stories that it wouldn't be right for me not to disclose the way that my own refracted lens on this topic had impacted my views. I just felt like that would be disingenuous. Um, and thankfully, really universally, people have responded well to my self-disclosure, including my mom, um, who, you know, read the book and said, yeah, that, you got it about right. That's, that's, I would agree with that, which was nice. You know, it wasn't like, 
yay, our relationship is repaired, nothing like that. But it was like, okay, the way that I sort of saw reality after much reflection was validated by this yeah. this other person who who could say that I I saw it in the same way. And that that's a good feeling, you know, that like, okay, yeah, I, I'm seeing it clearly. I don't I, I'm sad about what is the truth, but at least I know what the truth is. And and this person who is involved in my truth corroborated it. Yeah, it's fascinating hearing that. Um do you think you could have been that open five years ago, ten years ago? Is this something that as you learn, I guess, this, this is the feeling I get throughout the book, Karna, there's not only you as the expert, but also you as someone who really listens and pays attention to your patients and has actually learned so much about what it means to live a good and proper and calm and peaceful and content life from them. You know, and I guess there's a real personal reason why I'm asking this, because I have my book's about to go to print. I am revealing <laughs> so much more about myself than I ever have done. In fact, my wife mm. proofread it last week. She's like, baby, you sure you want to put this in? <laughs> so I guess I'm feeling, uh, I'm looking for reassurance and I'm, yes. I'm, and I'm getting yeah. it. But I, I feel confident now, but I wouldn't have done a few years ago because yeah. I would have felt too scared of being judged. And mm -hmm. I just wonder if there's anything that resonates with you about that? Is this something you can do now at this stage in your life and your career? Would you have been able to do that, do you think, a few years back? I think you're right. I think there's something about getting older, getting more comfortable maybe with ourselves yeah. and our choices, um, feeling that we, we've actually gained, you know, some modicum of wisdom that we want other people to benefit from. So I do think that when we make ourselves truly vulnerable, right? Not in a manipulative sense, but in, yeah. a, in a really, it hurts to share kind of way. You know, we're giving people a gift just as our patients give us a gift every time they tell us what's really going on with them. It's a great gift. Um, and it's a it's probably the most powerful gift because you can tell people the lessons that you, that, you know, to live by or whatever, but until you tell them how, you're broken and the way that you came through, it will never have the same kind of power or impact. But I mean, and also, you know, you're somebody who's like from the outside, my gosh, I mean, people look at you like, oh, you know, he's so famous and he's a doctor and he has all, his world must be perfect. And so, you know, when, when we reveal ourselves, like, I, I, you know, actually every day is kind of a struggle, you know, and I, I, I suffer with the same kinds yeah. of problems as I think, I think it really, it really helps people. That's yeah. been my experience. That's been my experience. Yeah. It connects us. And as you say, it's in that sort of real maskless interaction Right. where intimacy is born and coming full circle, as you say, intimacy also gives us dopamine. Yeah. Right? And I love yeah. that. So dopamine's not good or bad. It's right. dopamine just is. That's and right. it's where are we getting our dopamine from? Right. You know, that's the kind of underlying message, isn't it? It's get it from cuddles and intimacy and mm -hmm. time with your tribes and get it less from these devices, right? You, yeah. you, you're not saying don't do it at all. You're just saying right. get the balance right. Mm -hmm. That's right. Finding that balance. That's the key. 
Honor, this podcast is called Feel Better, Live More. When we feel better in ourselves, we get more out of our lives. At times in the early part of the book, it's, you know, a pretty depressing uh, picture gets painted of the state of the modern world and how easy it is for us to get addicted. Of course, there's lots of practical tools in the book as well. Are you optimistic or are you pessimistic about the future? I am definitely optimistic. I am optimistic. I think especially Gen Z is going to figure this out. You know, they're the ones that really were born into this technology. Um, You know, they're basically cybernetically enhanced at this point in terms of, you know, the ways in which the technology is embedded in their everyday lives. And I I think that they're going to, I'm optimistic that they're going to figure it out. You know, we are incredibly adaptable. And of course, we are seeing the terrible dark side of of so much of what we've built. But I I am very optimistic that we will... We will we will find the balance. Yeah, me too. From what I, from what I've heard from you, from what I've even seen in my own kids, I'm like, okay, well, yeah. maybe. Yeah. Actually, maybe it's not as bad as I think. Maybe yeah. these <laughs> kids are going to be able to figure this out. Right. Um, right. And also, just at the end of the conversation, I, I think many people will have resonated with so many elements of this. They would have heard little bits and thought, man, maybe I've got an unhealthy relationship with X, Y, or Z. For those people who are now thinking about questioning their relationship with certain things and maybe recalibrating it, I wonder if you could give some sort of final words of wisdom for them. Yeah, you know, uh, first of all, keep the faith. There, There's always hope. And, you know, if you've tried to stop a substance or behavior and found you haven't been able to, don't give up. Um, you know, keep keep looking at it, keep strategizing. Um, and you know, don't be hard on yourself. Self-compassion is key, but do continue, don't, don't give up. I think that's probably the bottom line. Um, we can make our lives better, especially when we understand, you know, the source of our suffering. And the real point of dopamine nation is that paradoxically a major source of our suffering may be the very things that give us so much instantaneous pleasure. So by eliminating those things um, to the extent that we're able for long enough for our brains to recalibrate, I really do believe that that will be an aha moment for a lot of people. So it's a project worth doing. Um, and it's a project that that your listeners can can do. Um, even those among them who may have despaired at this point. Lana, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. I have so enjoyed speaking to you. I have relished every single page of your brand new book, Dopamine Nation. Uh, Take care, be well, and uh, hopefully at some point in the future, we'll get to meet in person. And maybe if you're up for it, you can come back on the podcast and share some of your wisdom in the future. That would be great. And I'm looking now very looking forward to reading your new book. Really hope you enjoyed that conversation. As always, do think about one thing that you can take away and start applying into your own life. As well as Anna's book, Dopamine Nation, please do consider pre-ordering my fifth book, Happy Minds, Happy Life. It's coming out shortly. It's all about happiness and mental well-being. There is lots and lots of new content in there. 
If you enjoy my weekly podcast, I am quite sure you are going to enjoy my new book. All links to pre-order are in the episode description in your podcast app. Before you go, I really want to let you know about Friday Five. It is my weekly newsletter that contains five short doses of positivity to get you ready for the weekend. And in a world of endless emails, it really is delightful that many of you tell me it is one of the only weekly emails that you actively look forward to receiving. It usually contains a practical tip for your health, books or articles that I've been reading, a quote that's caused me to stop and reflect, basically anything that I feel would be helpful to share. If that sounds like something you would like to receive each Friday, you can sign up for free at drchatterjee.com forward slash Friday five. And if you enjoyed listening to the podcast and found the content useful, please do take a moment to share it with your friends and family. Please also do consider leaving a review on whichever podcast platform you listen on. And of course, please do support the sponsors. You can see the full list of discount codes at drchatterjee.com forward slash sponsors. And if you are new to my content, you may be interested to know that I have written four books so far. Fifth one coming out soon. They are available to buy all over the world. They cover all kinds of different topics like mental health, nutrition, sleep, stress, behavior change, and weight loss. So please do take a moment to check them out. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week. Please do press follow on whichever podcast platform you listen on so you will get notified when my latest conversation comes out. And always remember, you are the architect of your own health. Making lifestyle change is always worth it. Because when you feel better, you live more. Thank you.